You're listening to the Tuesday Talks Podcast, your source of truth in communications, identity management, and technology, hosted by Numerical. All right, welcome to Tuesday Talks, a live discussion series where we shed light and truth uh, to emerging topics in the communications industry. I'm Rebecca Johnson, founder and CEO of Numerical, and I'll be co-hosting uh, today's session with Anise Jaffer. Hi everyone, I'm Anise Jaffer, Chief Product Officer for uh, Numerical. Uh, today we are attempting to define caller ID authentication as required from the Traced Act and how that relates to Strashaken. So Rebecca, what does the Trace Act say about caller ID authentication? Let's start with that. So um, Anise, there seems to be um, so many ways to refer to the caller ID authentication, such as you know verified ID, verified caller, accurate identification, authenticated caller identification, and so on and so on. So really to understand the general concept, let's look at the Trace Act to learn where accurate caller information uh, will come from. So what we find is actually a deadline for the FCC to define not the term, but the best practices that providers of voice service may use as part of the implementation of their effective call authentication framework, which we covered in our podcast titled Debunking the June 2021 Stir Shaken Deadline. You said a deadline. Um, sounds like we have more orders from the FCC. Uh, is this the same deadline as, as the Stir Shaken one or is this something else? So while there were plenty of orders that the FCC had to publish last year, um, this directive is more of a step back from an order and is an industry best practice. So adherence is not necessarily a requirement, but this does mean that when it comes to accurately identifying the caller as part of the caller authentication framework, basically the FCC is saying, you know better if you try to claim that you don't. Gotcha. So when you say best practices, um, we've seen this before. CTIA has a best practice, I think, for short code messages. Uh, now, coming back to this one, is this something uh, that's publicly available? And who, who wrote this best practice? Right. So they are publicly available. Um, and at the request of the FCC's Wireline Competition Bureau, uh, the Nancy, via its call authentication trust anchor working group, is the one who recommended the best practices. Call Authentication Trust Anchor Working Group. Um, that's a lot of words. Did I get that right? <laughs> that's right. But we can call it the CATA Working Group for short. Right. And who are all the participants? Uh, is this an open group or is it invite only? So the members are initially nominated to the FCC and then the FCC will appoint the membership. So as far as the members that we see in this group, it's the obvious participants. It's Addis, AT&T, Comcast, CenturyLink, Verizon, T-Mobile, and other participants such as Google, Intelnex, and TransNexus, just, just to name a few. So uh, what I love about this group is, Anise, this is the industry that we uh, work with. You know, these are the who's who uh, in the uh, telecommunication space addressing this challenge. 
And uh, just a little sidebar on this particular group, um, you know, I had the extreme honor of being able to represent the enterprises and the challenges that service providers have with these best practices. And I did see some of our recommendations uh, to get adopted into the best practices. So oh. it was it was a great group and they produced a good work. Great. Uh, can, can you share some of the best practices? Right. So when the FCC identified this group and charged them to define the best practices, they gave them a list of questions um, that they wanted them to address. And the first question was really basically, you know, which aspects of a subscriber's identity should or must a provider collect to enable it to accurately verify the identity of a caller? So right off the bat, the FCC clearly uh, understands the core issue is uh, how does a service provider accurately identify a caller? Exactly. So from there, the FCC inquires about the application of the accurately identified caller to the authentication framework. And Anise, this is going to be some questions that I'm going to ask you uh, about how do we apply this, but First, let's just dig a little deeper into this, you know, the best practice recommendations. So the answer, the, to answer the FCC's core question of, you know, identification, the working group dissects several definitions of who is actually being identified. Who knew that was going to be complex? But it was. We have to answer who are we identifying. But for this conversation, I'm going to stick to the entity that's being identified as the enterprise. So the entity who the called party should be informed of who is calling. So when when you're saying entity, uh, just so we are all on the same page, you are referring to the enterprises, right? Like the hospitals, the schools, uh, the government agencies, the pharmacies and, and resorts and so on and so forth. Is that correct? Correct, correct. So, you know, what we're identifying is the types of entities as opposed to individuals. And individuals is still a requirement. If you think about um, for the wireless carrier that's subscribing to an individual, they have their set of um, you know vetting that they do for individuals. But for a company, for a hospital, retail pharmacy, this is a very different type of vetting. So when we look at what the service providers are going to have to do, they're going to have to collect more than just the name and address. There are business details to collect and verify, such as EIN, the DUNS number, their corporate address, perhaps articles of incorporation, their business address. And you also have regulatory and legal enforcement that could be filed against the company. You have to understand the types of calls being delivered and so on. So it's, it's really complicated. But the uh, the concept of enterprise vetting, that itself is not new, right? I mean, we've seen this in other industries. It sounds very similar to know your customer and, and policies that are applied to combat money laundering and illegal financing and things like that in the financial uh, landscape. So the same concept is now being applied into, into communications? That's right, Anise. And, you know, what's different about this whole know your customer type concept is that it's, you know, the voice service providers uh, are the ones that have to do this. This is not a level of vetting that they've ever had to do. Um, and this is not an easy task. So in fact, uh, I wanna call your attention to something that stuck out to me in the best practices because 
I've read the FCC make similar statements. And in fact, we kind of see the same message coming from the FTC as well. So to summarize, best practices, which is great, are at the discretion of the service provider. There is a high level of expectation as stated in the FCC's supported best practices. And in multiple instances, there's this statement that is reiterated. And I believe it's also reiterated in the standards themselves. And it says a provider's reputation is tied to the rigor of its evaluation process. Mm. So, you know, Anise, as an industry as a whole, uh, we need to take seriously our approach to establishing authenticated caller ID information. So it's clear um, to present an authenticated caller ID, uh, a service provider has to first establish a local policy uh, to accurately identify the enterprise, uh, the number and the call. Uh, the service provider can establish their own process um, to, to do that local policy, but the, the policy itself or the process uh, can be based on the best practices that the working group has built and you can you know you can that you can use that as a foundation but at the end of the day the service provider uh, provider's reputation is tied to how rigorous the policy and the processes are is that is that correct right and i i really don't think that the service providers fully understand you know everything that you just mentioned i don't think they've gone through the 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 process to put it all together with understanding the burden, this, this really is a burden um, that's being placed on them to provide that accurate caller ID information with an authenticated call. Right. And right, so I think what we have is that many are believing that they just have to purchase, right? A call signing solution, which we see on the market, everybody's promoting it, implement this solution and, and, and you're done. But Anise, that's you know only the mechanism, right? To deliver the authenticated and authorized identity. Am I right on that? <laughs> right, that's that's right. Um, the the service provider, if uh, they are originating the call and they issued the number to the enterprise, then the policy it's relatively easier to handle, right? I mean, it's straightforward. Mm -hmm. You know, the customer, the service provider can has issued the number, and you can you can attest with A or, or clearly identify the caller. Now the complex scenario is when, when the enterprise is using a number uh, that was issued by another provider, or um, it's the enterprise is calling on behalf of somebody else. Right? So there is no simple way to to verify if the ent enterprise got numbers issued by another provider. Right? Currently, you can manage this by collecting LOAs or letters of authorization from the enterprise and use that um, as a mechanism to authenticate the uh, caller in, in a, to an extent. Uh, I, but there are other solutions that are being discussed um, to extend the stress shaking framework. Uh, delegated search is probably the most discussed solution, uh, but there's also the centralized DV and there is also a distributed ledger model. Uh, those are all different solutions that have been proposed. Uh, in fact, um, Doug Bellows of Intelliquent, uh, he had proposed a model based on LOA. So you can collect LOAs and use that as a, as a, as a way of authenticate the number to authenticate the number. And if the, if the enterprise really has, you know, um, uh, the authority to use that number. 
Anissa, I want to, I want to, before you, before you move on, I have a question about that. You know, with these options that are being proposed to solve this problem, um, do you get a sense for how service providers are going to approach this? Are, are you seeing uh, service providers um, really exploring and trying to make a decision on what their local policy procedure is going to be? I think in the, in the current state, um, most service providers are implementing the, the core shaken. Uh, the local policy as they see it is to apply for their immediate customers and their enterprises, but extending beyond that uh, to, to either enterprises that got numbers from another service provider but are using um, you know, a provider to another provider to make a call or if there, if there are multiple layers, that is still a little bit of an unknown. Um, that's the reality right now. Uh, there are models, there are local policy solutions that you can implement. There are extended mod- models you can leverage and um, and add on top of the base trashaken, but it's still open. Uh, that's that's where we are. One of the interesting, I don't know if I can call it a trend yet, because um, I think it has to happen <laughs> um, more, more often than what I've seen yet, but I've noticed uh, inquiries coming into us with regards to uh, approaches to just provision their own numbers. So as a instead of having a have to deal with a policy to accept others' numbers coming in, they want to change their policy to, to be, you have to use the numbers that we provision. Uh, do you think that that's a good approach? Uh, might there be some pitfalls with that? Well, you're forcing the enterprise to, to pick one or the other. And um, the enterprises have been um, used to Taking one number and then using another provider for making calls. It's it's uh, that's how uh, all their s- systems and infrastructure. A lot, a vast majority of them are set up, you know, to do that. And there are scenarios where if you are an enterprise and you're using another BPO or a call center to make a call, you could give them the numbers. Your you know example one eight hundred number that you want to use, you can give them and and they can use it. And the BPO or the call center may or may not. Uh, you know, they, they don't own the number. So it is, you know, it is going to be a lot of change if you're going to force everybody to get the number and, and then use a particular service provider to make the call, right? So that to me is, is going to disrupt and create more um, problems than actually offer a solution. Hmm. That's interesting. So, so if we're going to tie this back to the trace act a little bit here. Um, you know, we're talking about all the steps that you have to take uh, to get the accurate uh, identity. And it's kind of one of those things that uh, if I don't get it accurate, then, you know, what's the ramifications? If there's no ramifications, how, how much effort am I really going to put into making sure that I have all of these policies and procedures before I even sign a call? And I think it's something important that we, we need to consider. Uh, we don't have answers. Uh, just yet on what happens if a call is inaccurately identified. Um, when I looked at the trace stack, just to try to get an idea of where, where are we going with this? What does Congress expect? You know, they do require the FCC to prescribe some regulations to establish basically like a process to streamline the ways in which a private entity can volunteer or share information regarding inaccurate caller identification information. Uh, among some other things that that they want to create this kind of information flow. So what I'm kind of interested 
to know is, you know, what happens to the voice service provider if the information is inaccurate? What would be the reasons why the information is inaccurate? And then, you know, who's at fault? Who's at fault for presenting inaccurate information? Is it the service provider who assigned the information or could it be the terminating side? You know, the terminating side could have an error (laughs) with their system on what they display to subscribers. Maybe they decide they want to suppress the information. Um, I don't know if those are things that you've thought about uh, as well, Anise, with regards to the flip side of when we get the information incorrect. Yeah, I mean, a lot of unknowns there. Um, The uh, Act, uh, the Traced Act, uh, talks about... um, penalties and uh, if a number, you know, not to label a number or a misrepresent or mislead um, identification of a caller, uh, but what it means uh, or what the repercussions are, what, what the penalty is, and that's not described. And I also mm-hmm. saw in several um, references in the act where it talks about oh, within 12 months and 18 months, we will probably have a report uh, probably a report that's that that would get built by the working group and with recommendations and and feedback and uh, what what has been learned after implementing the solution. Uh, I think a lot of those things will play out and we'll have to see what happens and depending on how, you know what um, kind of input they gather, then we could see some um, changes or proposed regulations in terms of how do you manage that. But right now at this point, it's still open. Uh, That's how I see it. Um, I would, uh, as a service provider, if I'm looking at this, uh, I would try to get a local policy implemented, a solution implemented where you can identify the calls that are being originated from your network um, and have the ability to provide some kind of traceback mechanism of how you authenticated or, or the reasoning behind um, whether the call was labeled A, B, or C, uh, have that process and procedures in place. Um, so you, at least you would have some kind of data to back up what you did. That I think is what is needed. And I and I also think that the, the, the Trace Act is trying to tell that that's what you need to do as a service provider to start with, and then figure out what happens after it gets implemented. So that's perfect segue, <laughs> Anise, right into our um, first question that we have um, from Christian. I think Molly is going to uh, ask the question related to that. Hey, Molly. I am. Thank you. So this was a great question that was submitted in advance. What happens when a call originator makes a call through a carrier with a number they acquired from another different carrier in regards to one the level of attestation they can get, and two, if they do get a B-level attestation versus A-level, how will that impact what subscribers experience on the terminating side when called? All right, Anise, there's two questions. You get the first and I get the second. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the first one, um, I'm not sure. I think it really depends on on the carrier that is actually being used to originate the call. Um, so let's assume that, that, the, that the call originator uh, uses a carrier, but they did not get the number from there. So they, again, it comes back to what policy they implemented and how they, how they are treating that, um, uh, that enterprise as well as that number. If they believe, let's say the carrier believes that they have a very, you know, they know the c- customer or the client or the call originator, 
and they have a good KYC policy in place, they could theoretically attest the call as A, right? If if they have gone through the entire verification and the KYC policy, then it it could be signed as uh, as level A. Uh, however, um, a, a different carrier could take an approach that if you don't get the number from 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 me, then I would always attest it as B. That that is also possible. So it really depends on how the local policy is implemented by the originating carrier. Um, and that could determine whether the call is attested as A or B. Yeah, so so <clears throat> to the second part of that question of, okay, so if it goes as a B-level attestation, you know, how will that impact the subscriber's experience? Because it's all about contact, right? We have to get this call delivered. From what we've seen thus far, I think this is something that will change over time. Um, but I would say what we see thus far is that there won't be a difference between how the terminating carrier treats a B and a level as far as presentation to the subscriber. Where it may make a difference is with regards to the analytics on the terminating side. And I think this is still an exercise and a test for the analytics providers, for them to figure out what are we doing with this additional data set of a B versus an A? What does an A tell me that a B doesn't tell me, right? And it's that two part on an A, we feel like we can trust that call a little bit better because we know that the number, uh, the entity delivering the call is authorized to use the number. And this whole process we talked about of identifying the caller, you feel like, okay, they, they probably have done their rigorous right evaluation. So perhaps maybe that means something on the analytics side. We don't know what it means. Um, a B level, I don't feel like that should be interpreted as untrusted because we're going to have a scenario that we just talked about the challenge around what an originated carrier does with a number that they did not provision. Guess what? That's a challenge for everybody. That's not unique to one service provider. So everybody in the industry has the same challenge. So I do not see terminating carriers treating a B-level attestation as though it should just be blocked. I, I don't see that. Unless, Anise, you have a different opinion than me. It's um, okay. No, I, I don't think uh, I differ too much. Uh, it could be that A could get a Verstat uh, or a verification check, um, whereas a B-level call may not get it. And that could influence uh, what the subscriber does with the call. So if I am getting the call as a subscriber and I get one call which says verification checked and I have a tick mark, uh, and then there's another call that doesn't have a tick mark, the chances are that I would answer the first one and not the second call, right? So the call completion could differ depending on um, whether it gets uh, a verification check mark or not. Um, and again, it as you said, it, it comes down to what happens at the termination, whether what kind of um, algorithms are, are deployed at that particular subscriber's uh, terminating service provider and what that algorithm does with the, with the, with the flag. An A-level flag should, in theory, pass verification and give, get that verification check. A B-level flag may or may not get it. I don't think they would give a complete Verstat check if you get a B-level. Um, I would, I, I would yeah. be surprised if somebody gives that check. I like the way you actually stated that, and I don't feel like it's been stated before, but there's really two things to look at. Uh, we need to look at what the experience is during the time of call, and then what the reaction is 
by the subscriber. I think that's something we need to be monitoring going forward based on all these different variations. Right. So I think on that note, um, we are running out of time. So let's get to some audience questions. Let's go with your uh, pre-submitted, Molly. Okay, let's do that. So pre-submitted online was a pretty good one. What recommendations do you make to call originators who want to make sure 100% of their calls are going to be A-level attested? I'm going to take a um, jump at that one. So in understanding, I think it's important you understand what your service provider, what their requirements are, right? We talked about kind of the burden of the know your customer and the number authorization. I would love, love, love to see enterprises working with their um, uh, service providers to make sure that their identity is uh, trusted, that they cooperate with the vetting, the know your customer, and um, that they obtain, I mean, Anise just mentioned several different options for the authorization of the number. Work with your service provider on what method are they wanting? Because at the end of the day, your service provider will be implementing their local policy. So understand what that local policy is and then support it. Um, and, and I think that will go a long way as opposed to enterprises fighting with their service providers. Um, that's just something that I would like to see. Anise, maybe you've got some thoughts around that as well. No, I, I would I would agree with what you said. Uh, it depends on the service provider. Uh, as a call originator, you would have to work with your service provider to figure out what their local policy is uh, and for, for getting your calls attested as A. Um, we are seeing um, some service providers already out there deployed, uh, but the vast majority are still in the process of doing it. Um, so it will take some time before uh, everything falls in place. Uh, but that's where I would start, I think, uh, to understand how the your particular uh, service provider has implemented the solution. Yep. So I think on that note, um, we'd like to thank everyone for joining us on another Tuesday Talk session. Uh, we love hearing questions and appreciate uh, your participation. In our next session, we'll be diving into why Stir Shaken doesn't fully address authenticate caller identification information. Uh, the assumption across the industry is that implementing the stir shaken standard will provide identity in the form of an authenticated caller ID name to the subscriber, but it's not really as simple as that. So join us on Tuesday, March 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern to learn more. Send in your questions and we hope to see you there. Thank you. <laughs>